Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. On April 19, 1995, a little before 9am, ex-soldier Timothy McVeigh parked a rider rental truck outside the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City. Inside the truck was a crude yet lethal bomb made from fertiliser, diesel, petrol. McVeigh locked the truck and walked away. Moments later, at 9.02, the truck exploded, tearing the front of the building apart, killing 168 people, including 19 children, and injuring hundreds more. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. Police found 27 corpses. Australia's worst serial killer. Even though I didn't want to get in the car, I had to. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello there, I'm Rob McKnight. Welcome to Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. And as always, we have the serial killer whisperer, true crime author and criminologist Amanda Howard with us. Hello, Amanda. Robert, here we go again with a really interesting case, and I'm, I'm glad that we're finally getting into some terrorism. Well, it's a it's a well known one, so I'm looking forward to getting your insights into Timothy McVeigh. Yeah, and this this was one that I had high hopes for, um, and you'll see how that goes as, as we move through it. Uh, I was hoping I had a smart guy, and uh, we'll see what Ted Kaczynski has to say about him. <laughs> okay, let's get into it, because it was a beautiful day in Oklahoma City. At least it started out as a beautiful day. The sun was shining, flowers were blooming. It was springtime in Oklahoma City. So said the prosecutor in his opening statement in the case against the Oklahoma bomber. On 19 April 1995, Timothy McVeigh, a 27-year-old ex-soldier, had parked a rented truck in front of the Alfred P. Murray Federal Building in Oklahoma City. He got out of the driver's seat, closed the door behind him, and casually headed toward the getaway vehicle, driven by friend and co-conspirator Terry Nichols. McVeigh placed tiny protective plugs into his ears and ignited two timing devices as they drove away. Just above the explosive packed rental truck was a childcare centre where children of employees of the building spent their days playing. Moments after the explosives were detonated, 168 people, including 19 children, were killed as upper floors concertinaed down onto the floors below. Hundreds more were injured while 300 surrounding buildings were damaged in the blast. And until September 11, 2001, it was the worst terrorist attack ever carried out on US soil. After the bombing, McVeigh avoided detection for only a brief time and was arrested no more than 75 minutes after the fact by Trooper Charles Hanger. The car in which McVeigh and Nichols were traveling, a 1977 Mercury Marquis, had lost its rear license plate. And after they were pulled over, the two men were found to be carrying loaded concealed weapons. Once in custody, McVeigh and Nichols were soon charged with the bombings. 
Here is CNN's footage of the bombing as recorded by cameras across the street from the Murray building. At 8.57 a.m., security cameras at the Regency Tower apartment building a few blocks west of the Murrah building catch the Ryder truck parked across the street. Investigators surmise this is when McVeigh lights the first fuse. A few minutes later, McVeigh moves the truck up, lights the second fuse, and parks on the north side of the Murrah building. He then exits the truck and begins walking rapidly to the yellow Mercury parked four blocks away. At the federal building, the workday is starting. Hundreds of people are already inside. Now, Amanda, it's interesting, isn't it? Because while he was in prison, McVeigh agreed to do a 60 Minutes interview. And, of course, we have to note that this is VHS quality. So someone has recorded it on VHS when it aired. They have uploaded it to YouTube. So there's a bit of distortion throughout the recording. The rule of the interview were that the journalist could not ask about his guilt, particularly because McVeigh was also going through the appeals process. Isn't that right, Amanda? Yes, and so it sort of makes it very difficult for them to sort of uh, play this game where they're just going to um, sort of say, oh, I'm going to ask you just slowly into there and then we're going to go somewhere else. It's just sort of they, they tried to tease it out of him, hoping it would work. But with his lawyer sitting there, that wasn't going to happen too much. Okay. Well, his first answer will give you a fair indication of his self-importance. Maybe one of the benefits of me talking to you today is that you'll see that maybe not everything is true that you've heard about me. Okay, Amanda, we're off. Let's do the double speak a la Manson, hey? I know. I, I get images of um, Bill Clinton as well. I think it's his kind of accent because I'm an Aussie. They all sound the same to me anyway. Um, but there's a bit of I Clinton, did not put you know, bombs in that rental truck. <laughs> oh, too soon. <laughs> Sorry. But, but it's just interesting that, you know, he's like, oh, well, maybe this might happen and maybe that might happen. And so he's, he's just sort of starting from a place of manipulation and that basically he's the most important person in the room. And we've seen this before when we did Ed Kemper doing um, a, a journalist interview as well. He did the same thing. They realised that they're there to see them. They're rock stars. And so they yes. want to play that game of, you know, I did this because it, it was for, for the greater good. You know, I did this because, you know, I didn't like my mum and all, all of this sort of stuff. So he is starting from a place of, like, I know how great I am. Um, do you reckon he's got a bit of resting bitch face? Oh, my God, yes. And it's it's as someone with resting bitch face, and so people think I'm always cranky, I totally get it. But you there's, there's just cranky. moments. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah. But what we're seeing here is that there is micro expression. So those that are watching the film, they'll be able to see that um, he's, he does a couple of snarls a few times, especially in, in, in this beginning, that he thinks he's hiding well by sort of trying to have a blank expression. But that, that curled Elvis lip comes through and you know that it's just absolute uh, contempt for what's going on and, and he just needs to get his story and walk out of jail a free man. All right, well, let's take a closer look at that. And if you want to see it, just go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions or mwm.uscreen.io and you can get onto the video tiers. But let's have a look at this snarl you're talking about. One of the benefits of me talking to you today is that... <laughs> there it is. 
<laughs> so we've slowed down the vision, as you could hear on the audio <laughs> podcast. But he does have a little, a bit, dare I say, a bit of the Elvis snarl going on there. <laughs> it is, it is, and and it's because that's how he's feeling. You know, he he wants this to be a friendly chat, like you know. Guys, you have to understand my side of the story because in court, you know, he didn't get to tell his side of the story and all of this sort of stuff that, that that's going on. And um, he's, he's just trying to sort of start off, but he's like, yeah, I know where you want to go with this and so I have contempt for you. Yeah, apparently McVeigh's favourite song to listen to in jail was Jailhouse Rock uh, by the king himself. <laughs> I don't know. Is that true? Maybe not. Uh, <laughs> Joe Kevin, next time I'm going to get you with the Elvis um, impression as well. So uh, that, that's got me. That's got me. That's got me. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's get serious now because the journalist Ed Bradley asks for some examples. What's not true? Well, am I, am I pure evil? Am I the face of terror sitting here in front of you? Or am I able to talk to you man to man? Isn't that uh, an interesting psychology? You can't talk man to man and be evil too. He seems to be implying the two, or not implying, pretty much saying that the two are mutually exclusive. Yeah, and, you know, he, he, he seems to have that misconception, you know, and, you know, it, it comes down to that thing that we discuss often is that, you know, you have to look evil to be evil. Resting bitch face doesn't make you evil. But he just he's, he's just trying to say that, you know, I'm just a man, you know, standing in front of you, wanting you to love me, or whatever that quote is, you know. But um, he he wants now us you're to quoting uh, Notting Hill, Jesus, <laughs> Notting Hill. <laughs> I'm a huge Hugh, Hugh Grant fan. I can't help that. Um, don't hold it against me though. Um, you know, but he, he he wants to hold a conversation that is away from the crime. He wants to talk about the person who Timothy McVeigh is. He doesn't want to talk about the bomber, the terrorist attack. His, his time in the army, he wants to talk about that he is, you know, an agent of a God who's guy. come to do something wonderful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and this had to happen for a certain reason. Mm. Well, anyone inside the US who's watched 60 Minutes knows Ed Bradley is a very good journalist. Uh, in Australia, we have 60 Minutes, so he's of that ilk of a high-quality current affairs program. And, of course, a journalist like him isn't going to let... McVeigh off the hook. Most people in this country think you are the face of evil, don't they? They do. But sitting down here now, and let me make clear, I'm not sitting here trying to influence you, and I'm not putting on a game face. Uh, I'm not conning anybody. I'm just being me. And maybe people will listen, as opposed to not listening at a trial couple of things there. My bullshit detector is going off. Even dickhead Derek knows that everybody who does an interview is trying to get something across. Otherwise, you don't do interviews. So he is definitely trying to change the public perception of himself. Why does he feel that at a trial, people won't listen? That just seems like a false narrative when every bit of evidence is under scrutiny at a trial. Yeah, and they are actually um, innocent until proven guilty as well. But um, it's 
this was a trial that 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 was huge at the time uh, you know like I, I i sort of followed it here from australia you know it, it was just one of those cases that's like um how does this happen you know now these days we see it so much more and you know 2011 a uh, 2001 come and all of that sort of stuff that 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 changed our, our perception of um safety and terrorism but he's like hey look at me you don't understand me i'm here to explain you know that i'm i'm here to do good uh, it's it's i'm i'm a normal person it, it wasn't that i'm an evil person who chose to do this i'm a normal person who felt that he was compelled to do this because it was to bring light to other um atrocities that were going on um you don't need to kill you know 160 people to to get that point across you know but uh he's his his snarls are still there he's getting these tense lips that are really tight when you stop he's there's there's a, there's moments that you can tell that he's holding things in. His emotions are right there, and he's angry. You can tell that he's angry, and he knows that he's there to fight to get off the death penalty. It's amazing how these people fight for their own lives when they didn't care about the you know thousand people that were in that building. And yeah, that's that, the part that I don't think they understand. You know, very, it's very it's true. just weird. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Uh, interestingly, the journalist asked McVeigh what he felt about seeing the bombing in the news. Everyone in America saw the pictures on television, heard the news on the radio. What was your reaction when you saw those pictures? I think like everyone else, I thought it was it was a tragic event. And that's all I really want to see. Hmm. Amanda, you always make me count when there is a <laughs> silence like that. That's about nine seconds. He was not ready for that question, was he? No, and that's the first time that we're actually seeing him focus on the actual event and see what he saw as a normal person with everyone else in society seeing those news programs. And he called it a tragic event, not a terrorist attack, not, um, you know, something I was compelled to do, not something that, oh, my God, someone else might have done. You know, obviously his lawyer is telling him there that if you don't want to say anything, say, and that's all I have to say because he's going to say that, that a few times, I think, in this that will show that he has, has been prepped and he has been um, uh, trained on how to act to these. But, you know, he could have denied it then and there. He could have said, I didn't do this. And smartly, he didn't say it. But, um, you know, that was the opportunity right there to say, you know, I was as shocked as everyone else, but he didn't. Yeah, it was really, it was really interesting how he took, I just took a moment then to think about what I was trying to say. But going through his head right then was, what can I say? What is the least amount of damage to answer that question? And he didn't actually answer the question. He didn't say no. any of the things that you said. He, he didn't say what his reaction was to it. It was complete avoidance while trying to minimise his um, involvement. It's very, very interesting. And, mm. and being a good journalist, the 60 Minutes Journal pushes a little bit more, and we get another long pause. And the children? Uh, 
I thought it was it was terrible that there were children in the building. So the question was, and the children? Long pause. Yes, it was terrible that there were children in the bo- in the building. Uh, that is a statement, not anything else. Yeah, there's no sympathy there. Um, there there's no softening. He's still harsh. He's still he's still um, uh, angry, basically, about what's going on. You know, he he has no em- empathy for these children whatsoever. Though he's sort of saying, you know, I can't believe there was children in, in the building. He spent nine months planning this event. We know so now that knew. it took him a little over an hour. Yeah, he knew what was in that building. He would have gone in there a hundred times, or someone would have gone in there. They would have known that there there was a child care center. If not else, he would have seen people going in with their children. You know, that parked out outside. I know that there's probably parking un- underneath too. But the fact that you know he thought that he had this beautiful um, uh, plan, and he's now saying you know it's terrible that there was children in in, in the building. It's not accepting blame. But there's no blame at all. It's to, to him, it's an oops. Mm. Well, McVeigh is asked to address the victims and their families. And this is for the first time he appears animated, but only for a moment. There are things that I want to say. Uh, but the timing is not right. What do you mean? I, at the time, uh, right now, it, where I'm at in my appeals, where I'm at in my life, um, there are there are some issues that I just don't feel that it's the right time to discuss in depth. Now, people of our age will know that they, those were tracking marks that you could see on the screen there when the VHS <laughs> wasn't tracking properly. Younger people don't understand that concept at all because everything's digital, but we know. Um, Amanda... It feels like he really does want to say something to the victims and their families. Yeah, you'd think so, but I know what his final statement is when he he gets executed. So that's going to sort of negate anything he feels that he wants to say now. And we will get to it. It's okay, you know. But I really doubt that he had anything of value to add. He wasn't going to say he was sorry because because that then takes in um, blame, and he he didn't want to do that. You know, he wanted to do what he did. He just didn't want to get caught, and that's what is the crux of so many of of these cases. Nine months of planning took just over an hour to get caught. You know, he wasn't caught for the um, explosions, but you know, pretty quickly they realised who he was. But it's just interesting that um, he's he's sort of like, oh, you know, I, I would want to say something, and he would do lip service of sorry and everything, but he's not sorry. He has mm. no no inkling of, of of remorse for what he's done. Yeah, well, you don't plan something like that and then be sorry about it. As you say, he knew what he was doing. McVeigh was then asked about the day he was first charged and being perp-walked in front of the media and waiting throng. What was that like for you that day? People were shouting at you. Somebody, I remember somebody had shouted out baby killer. You go into a mode where you, you try to block external stimuli out. Uh, you're gearing up for anything to happen mentally, but at the same time you're, you're putting on your poker face because you're aware of how the media nitpicks at every little emotion that comes across on a face. You don't want to give him anything to feed off. Isn't it interesting looking at that footage? He doesn't appear to be the big brave guy who killed babies. Do you think he was afraid as he was being perp walked? 
Absolutely. We have a guy here who's in a bright orange, beautiful Target uh, jumpsuit that says, hey, this is the guy. And all of the cops and FBI and ATF around him are all wearing big jackets because they've got their Kevlar on. You know, they Mm. they know that it could happen. And there's many times that we see this sort of thing where around them have on, you know, like the full neck ones and everything because it's a chance it could happen. I don't know why it doesn't happen for... No, I'm not going to get into the, the the gun argument, but to me that was a perfect opportunity to to fight for rights by someone else that was, you know, a member of family or something. To me, I wouldn't have been surprised if that happened. Thankfully, it doesn't happen, and and these people do see justice. Um, but it's just amazing that, as you said, you know, he's 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 not this big guy, you know, screaming obscenities and saying, you know, I did the right thing and everything. He's just now a horrible person who killed babies, as you said. Mm. And then going off on a tangent, Ed Bradley reads to McVeigh what he wrote in his high school yearbook. In your high school yearbook, you, under future plans, you wrote, and I'm quoting here, take it as it comes, buy a Lamborghini, California girls. Right. Well, I'm dreaming. I'm putting down my dreams, you know. (laughs) If If I could rob a genie in a bottle, that's what I wish for, right? So... Sounded a bit. It sounded like sheer desperation in that laugh, and even the way he looks off camera at the end, he, he's laughing. He's trying to be light, and then he has this moment where he looks down off camera, and the face changes back to a maybe a thought of what could have been. Yeah, he made that decision. You know, sucks to be him, right? That you know he could have had the girls and the Lamborghini and everything, and he decided instead to to kill people because he didn't like the government. You know, it's um, it's a very interesting way that he he, he went. And and I mean, we read high school yearbook things and things like that, and and I know what I I wrote in in mine at the time too, and everything. And and we have these goals, and so sometimes I think we need to look back at those things. Like that was his his plan. Yeah, it was a funny teenage thing to say, but why would he go from there to there? Like what happens in someone's life to go from you know California girls and singing David Lee Roth mm. to um to murdering people in in cold blood in a massive terrorist attack because you don't like what other people are doing. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah. Well, he's then asked about his military service and killing others in combat. Well, I've I've broken that question down over the years and analyzed it every way, you know, trying to trying to come to peace with it myself. In some ways, uh, I can see the, the right and wrong of it. The, the right, I thought, well, it was self-defense. The reason I fired is because I saw a muzzle, muzzle flash and I instinctively fired around in that direction. But then I thought, well, at the same time, I'm in this person's country. What right did I have to come over to his country and kill him? What? How, how did he ever transgress against me? Okay, so he justifies killing in combat, but 
it wasn't about the ground level combat, but the machinations behind that. Yeah, so he's sort of saying that you know it, it was self it was self defense in war, you know, solo shot first kind of thing. You know, the enemy engaged, and um, and so he shot back. It was self defense, you know, and then he says, you know, what rights did I have to kill him in his own country? Well, yeah, what right did the children have to not be killed in their own country? You know, and it's it's just interesting how he can justify that killing. And saying, yeah, you know, I, I I didn't deserve to be there, and so I was in self defence, and you know, I shouldn't have done it, but I had to because he engaged first. To you know, I've just killed 158 people, including 19 children. I mean, uh, he he doesn't see that it it doesn't correlate, it doesn't go together, and it just shows how mixed up their thought processes are. It's a complete contradiction when you, as you say, uh, he's defending the people that they're going to to their country and fighting, but then it's mm. okay to kill yeah. innocent people in a building, children and adults. So it's very, very weird. It is. I mean, he saw combat, like, yes, as as you just said, he was in the Gulf War. Um, but at the same time, like, that's our enemy and he was fighting as part of a peacekeeping or whatever they decided to call it. But it's amazing, though, that coming back, you know, he's he went over there to fight for his government. And now it comes back and fights against his government. It's mm. just it's it's just mixed up. Well, McVeigh is then asked about war and terrorism and why some killings are okay. I went over there hyped up, just like everyone else. Not only is Saddam evil, all Iraqis are evil. Uh, what I experienced though was an entirely different ballgame, and being face-to-face -face close with these people in personal contact, you realize they're just people like you. It's hard for some people to come to grips with, with you as the same person who was commended by the Army, who received the Bronze Star, who received the Combat Medal, as being the same person who was convicted in the Oklahoma City bombing. They can't put the two together. You understand that? I do understand. Um, they perceive, and many people have thrown this at me. They say, well, Tim, if we think you're guilty, imagine the paradox. In the Gulf War, you were given medals for killing people. So I've faced that um, that issue quite a few times with people that bring it up to me. And how do you explain it? Huh? At that point, usually I just uh, leave it at that um, and say that it is an interesting paradox. You could argue that what he's saying has a lot of merit. Now, Obviously, I'm not condoning what he's done, but he was a hero in the war, but the bombing was also an act of war, and it does... It's an interesting question, isn't it, about what acts of killing are okay? Very good question. Yeah, it is, and, and we can think of it this way. If that bombing that he did, that was very successful in what he did, um, was done in Kuwait, and, you know, 
or Afghanistan or anywhere like that where the US are at war, he would have gotten Purple Hearts and things like that for whatever they get for, for things mm-hmm. like that. He will, would have been applauded and given a ticker tape parade when he come home for, for doing something so wonderful that, you know, hurt hurt the government and the government agencies because in that building in Oklahoma was government agencies. You know, so it's it's amazing that had he done it elsewhere, he would have been a hero doing it on home soil. He's now a traitor and it's a terrorist attack. But yeah, you know, it's 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 just amazing, especially in our climate now since September eleven, that terrorism is like the worst of the worst. And and that's what we seem to be focused on a lot. And we see the fear and we see attacks across the world that are happening, you know, and these people are hated and, and, and reviled, but the people who support them see them as heroes. And so it's, a, so it's, as he said, it's an interesting paradox. And I think it's something that it, it, it shows someone's thought process when it comes down to this. He was a hero in war. He brought the war home. Yeah. He absolutely. thought he was doing a heroic thing. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Hmm. All right, so harking back to what you said about war and murder, McVeigh looks at his military career with disappointment after failing the physical to re-enlist. Was that disappointing for you to not make it? It was. Um, But at the same time, I was losing motivation. This was during a period when I was coming to grips with uh, uh, my role in the Gulf War. So is it fair to say that you were disillusioned when you came back? I mean, is that why you left the Army? It's part of it. I'm sure something didn't feel right in me, but I couldn't quantify it. I couldn't say what it was. So did the war make him a killer and him serving, or was he actually getting to live out something that was within him and is he blaming the war or the the killing that he did on the field for where for making him restless and making him go down this path what was his what was his goal in trying to destroy this building Oh, that's a long question, and we will get to some of that later. But for this part about going to, to, to war to kill or did it create someone that does kill, it's it's interesting in that um, uh, one serial killer said to me one time, they send you to war and teach you to kill, but when you come back, they don't teach you not to kill. And it's a very interesting mm. thing, and many serial killers that have seen combat have said this. Of course, the guy who said he'd seen combat was Arthur Shaw Cross, and he didn't, but he still claimed that he'd come home and uh, was a killer purely because of the Vietnam War. But um, it's interesting that it does affect people, but we know of so many return servicemen who don't go on to, to kill, but we know a lot of return servicemen and and women, obviously, as well, that um, are damaged by what they see. You know, they aren't there, you know, drinking cups of tea and and, and enjoying themselves. They're, you know, every, every step could be their last. And they are in a place of constant stress and panic, which is why they prefer them not to go over again and again and again. And he didn't make it through the second time. It was because he wasn't fit, but I don't know if that was psychologically unfit, mentally, um, physical, all of that. I'm not quite sure why, and I'm sure that we could find it, but it's interesting that he had planned to go back and maybe that would have prevented the terrorist attack. Maybe he wouldn't have come back at all. You know, and it's just interesting that uh, it's, it's, 
it's such a, a damaging part and we know a lot of killers that actually have a service, a service background. So I think it does affect them to a certain point and it, it's not an excuse, but I think it just piles onto every, everything else that they're thinking about. But mm. why he bombed that building, it's coming up, I promise you. <laughs> well, the journalist does turn to the political motives behind the bombing and we see him become quite agitated and animated. He returned to upstate New York and wrote a letter to his local newspaper saying in part that democracy was on the verge of failure and that, quote, America is in serious decline. You ended that letter with the words, do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? I hope it doesn't come to that, but it might. Right. Sounds like you were pretty angry when you came back. Um, I believe I had anger welling in me, yes. McVeigh says that anger at the government intensified in 1992 over the conduct of federal law enforcement authorities during a standoff with white supremacist Randy Weaver at his home in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. FBI sharpshooters killed Weaver's wife and young son. One of the agents involved in the shooting was charged with manslaughter, but the FBI insisted it was an accident and a federal judge dismissed the charges. Tell me what it is about that shootout at Ruby Ridge that concerned you? I could say the use of what is no more or less snipers in a domestic non-wartime situation, federal agents taking on the role of judge, jury, and executioner, and then to further add insult to injury, you have these people, these federal agents, uh, not held accountable. They become immune from the law. Okay, so killing in war and the terrorist bombing of the Murray building he considers should be immune from the law, but law officials killing people during a standoff should be charged. Surely he can't have it both ways. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he's, he's, he sort of goes against his own arguments so many times, you know, and, and we will do the Ruby Ridge siege, I promise you that, because it's a very Good. interesting case. Um, okay. You know, but... <laughs> But the tragic events of, of that, uh, that that saw Weaver's son and wife being killed, um, it's it's not an, a reason to then go in and de destroy an entire building. You know, he and, and and that article that we saw first up that he says, you know, it may come to violence to actually get things to happen. Um, that shows that he was already thinking about things like this, and he's mm. there to fight for the smaller person that that that's being persecuted by government agencies, FBI and all of that. But he's, he's just uh, he's just seeing it in a black and white way that it just doesn't make sense. Well, it's interesting because he seems to have kept a close eye on how law enforcement weighs into um, these kind of situations because he now goes into the Waco siege, uh, uh, which was a few months after Ruby Ridge, and, in fact, he went to Waco to watch the weeks-long standoff. Shaken, disillusioned, uh, angered uh, that that could happen in this country where our core beliefs are freedom and liberty. And what did you do to these people? You deprived them of life, liberty, and property. You didn't guarantee those rights. You deprived them of them. What also disturbs McVeigh about Waco was the government's use of tear gas against the men, women, and children inside the Branch Davidian compound. The thing that hits me the hardest about that is the CS gas. Just knowing what it does and knowing as, a, as some adults can barely breathe 
because of it. When I saw it introduced into a building full of kids like that, it just, the emotions it brings up make me speechless. There are a lot of people who are upset by that who would say, yeah, what happened there is wrong, but those are isolated incidents. That was just Ruby Ridge and Waco. What would you say to that? I would say I don't necessarily believe that to be true. Um, I think for people that follow the news and follow events, there are patterns of abuse evident. The mind of this guy. He's upset that tear gas or whatever gas it was was used on kids, but he has killed kids lest we forget. But he's really mad over all this, isn't he? Yeah, you know, he he doesn't believe that uh, the journalist sees the bigger picture. He's saying, you know, these uh, might be isolated in- incidents, but it's happening everywhere and no one is seeing it, you know, and, and so it takes these bigger cases to actually make people stand up and think, shit, what's going on? You know, why did ATF do, do what they did at Waco? And we're definitely doing Waco. Um, it, it's it's just that he says, you know, that these people had their, had their um, safety and security and lives taken away from them by the government didn't he do the same thing to government officials and their babies like and you know, their I, I children 100 percent. yeah 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 you know like why is that bad and his good but you know and he's angry he keeps you know screwing up his eyebrows he's like you know don't you get it don't you get what i'm saying don't you see the bigger picture i am that the government is going to keep doing this we're going to have wakers every week um until this gets get solved you know the fact that he doesn't see september 11 because he's executed before that um i would have loved to see what his take was on that that would have been Mm. fascinating yeah well the journalist does put it to mcveigh how should citizens react if they don't agree with what the government is doing there are many options is violence an acceptable option if Government is the teacher. Violence would be an acceptable option. What do you mean? Well, um, what did we do to Sudan? What did we do to Afghanistan? Belgrade. Um, What are we doing with the death penalty? It appears they use violence as an option all the time. So if the government uses this, it's okay for us as citizens to use it? I'll, uh, I'll let my explanation stand for itself. I think we can pretty much safely say the answer is yes. He thinks that violence is a good answer. It is amazing how he's worried about the tear gas on the children at Waco, but the burns, the crush injuries and the violence he did was okay. He really does want to have it both ways, doesn't he? He does. And, you know, the the, the fact that he threw the death penalty in there too, that that's unconstitutional. He sentenced all those people to death. Had he killed a thousand people, he sentenced a thousand people to death. He, He can't have it. Yes, there is wars going on. Yes, a lot of these wars 
shouldn't be happening, but they are, you know, and that's not what we're discussing today and we're not discussing gun violence and all of that sort of stuff. This is about him taking into his own hands an act of terrorism to terrify his own government into acting differently. You know, it's not going to happen. We saw September 11 really didn't change anything that we can't take water bottles onto planes. You know, it's things are still happening. But he thinks that that act was going to overhaul the entire government. That's all he had to do was going to sit back and, you know, just just do what he needed to do. Then, you know, he, he had his earplugs in so he didn't burst his eardrums with those explosions. I mean, this is how egocentric he was. And it's all self-serving, especially when he's bringing up the death penalty, knowing that that could be his fate, basically, yeah. after this. Uh, the interview now turns to McVeigh's arrest and why he thinks his trial was unfair, and he begins with that first perp walk he did after being charged. McVeigh believes these images of him, taken two days after his arrest in 1995, in leg irons and handcuffs surrounded by federal agents and broadcast repeatedly around the country, tainted the perceptions of the jurors at his trial. And that is a primary basis for his appeal. When I was marched out of the Perry County Courthouse in the orange jumpsuit, that was the beginning of a propaganda campaign. There would not be any denying that they're, they do engage in propaganda campaigns to demonize defendants. And uh, So you think when you were marched out that that was intentional to demonize you? I believe it was. And as let's say as a layman sitting back watching TV, uh, you see a defendant in an orange jumpsuit and you think, well, that's the person they've caught. That person must be guilty. It's just, it, it's natural. I, I just need a moment. I just need to um, really stop and think about poor Timothy McVeigh and, and what he must have gone through being paraded in public after killing all those people. You can't help but feel sad for him, can you, Amanda? Like it's almost enough to bring a tear to a glass eye. What a fucking... <laughs> Absolutely. You know, he's saying that the perp war was unfair. But really, you know, um, yes, it is a use of, of defence that often happens. And, you know, people say that, you know, I'm innocent until proven guilty. And so wearing the orange jumpsuit suggests I'm already a prisoner and all of this, you know. And, and like, they even had his trial moved to Colorado away from Oklahoma so that there wasn't such a, a tainted jury pool. Of course, the whole world knew that this happened. So it was going to be hard to find someone living under a rock who didn't know about yeah. this attack you know but he's forgetting that the perp walk wasn't the evidence that they used to convict him it was the nine months of planning going to these places hiring the rental truck um you know walking away on camera um being caught and you know all of this sort of stuff and all of this planning yet yeah, that's not an issue for him is that he got perp walked because it, it seems to me that he focuses in on little things like he has a sense of justice in his head, right? So, yeah, yes, yeah. he's guilty when you use all the other evidence. But that perp walk in his mind was unfair. He hadn't been found guilty of anything and yet he's being paraded in front of the media so they can all get their shot and show him in a guilty-looking stance. And you know what? In, in a moment of seriousness, there is some validity to that, mm -hmm. right? But they also knew they had their man. Yeah, 
I mean, in in Australia, if we do a perp walk, they actually um, blur their faces because until they're found guilty, we don't yeah. show their faces. And and this is what is, is different. Um, we have so much access to, to criminal cases in the in the US. It's amazing, but it also comes at a cost of things like this because there are people that have been perp walked that have been innocent. Um, the um, the Atlanta Olympic Games um, case is is a perfect example that they the guy that actually saved people's lives they thought was the actual bomber and will do him yeah. as well and uh, and he was perp walked and he was like it, it destroyed his life um and the fact that he wasn't even the person who did it it just shows that it can go against some people but that guy was the the guy who did it was eric rudolph i think he wasn't perp walked as, as much as the original guy whose name escapes me right now but it just shows that um that there is an issue there but that's not why he got convicted no and look there is a bigger issue here um even in australia the the neighbor of william tyrrell the little boy who went missing in the spider-man outfit um his life he says has been destroyed because mm. he was a person of interest and has since been found to have had nothing to do with it he has won a settlement from uh the government which is now being challenged even though he's whole life his business has been destroyed so there's a there are much bigger issues in that but in the whole of things when there's this mountain of evidence against you it in this case you're barking up the wrong tree but interestingly the interview actually does put this question to seven of McVeigh's jurors and asks if the perp walk affected their decision in any way six of them had seen it Four of them say they knew the killer was now in custody, so McVeigh was asked what he thought of the jury. I believe that they came in with preconceived notions and that in the back of their minds, uh, well, their minds were made up. I mean, you realize that most people in this country think you're responsible for the bombing, correct? Correct. So if your perception is that you didn't get a fair trial, they're saying, so what? It's because I believe in the principle of the matter, there is a presumption of innocence followed by an open and honest jury that's fair and impartial. So you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Your concern is not guilt or innocence, but the right to a fair trial. It's the integrity of the process. He actually has good arguments, almost as good as Manson's. I want to take a moment and say, Amanda, I'm going to come back to that in a moment, but I just want to give a shout-out to the people that shot this interview, the camera crew at 60 Minutes, because I am fascinated by the reflection of Manson in the glass behind the journalist. The framing is just exquisite, and while they probably didn't have a lot of choices where they got to shoot it and, and how it worked, just... They, they could have easily put um, McVeigh in that seat, but they framed it in such a way that the lighting on McVeigh, you see McVeigh over the shoulder in the glass reflected behind the 60 Minutes journalist. I, I just think it's so well done. It's well, even if you don't subscribe to us on Patreon or Uscreen, go and have a look at it on YouTube, um, the mm. 60 Minutes interview. But I said it, this guy's arguments are as good as Manson. He believes the system should have been fair and impartial to him, even though the reason behind him carrying out the bombing was because he believed the system is broken, biased and unfair. <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm thinking, mate. You are stupider than, a, you know, a bag full of hammers. You just, 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 <laughs> I, I, 
it's just it gets to a point you think really mate like you you're wanting to have everything fair and you want want the government system to work and so he that's does have lofty ideals and then, he as i say yeah, despite yeah. all the evidence i i sort of think that if i don't know this is off the top of my head but do you think that if he felt he had had a fair trial that he would be okay with his guilty verdict? Or is it, even though there's these mountains of evidence, he's hyper-focused, hyper-focused on these elements where he goes, that wasn't fair. And so that sits with him badly. No, what it is is that the, the case was so watertight and done so well that they're trying to they they're, they're trying to get um rat shit out of pepper. They're really trying to find something that's not there, and and that's what is going on here. That's he, two expressions yeah, in two minutes I've never heard before. Oh, okay. As dumb as a bag full of hammers, and yeah. get rat shit out of pepper. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Amanda <laughs> All right. The journalist then asked why McVeigh sat through weeks of witness and victim testimony with little interest or sympathy. I was raised in an environment where men don't cry. Uh, you hold it back. Uh, obviously, there's a different uh, cultural phenomenon in America now with President Clinton uh, and his whole tear act all the time. But for me, through coming into adulthood, it's one of the things that a guy learns is how to hold back tears and not let it be shown. Oh, he does not like Clinton. He says it's a tough guy act and he suppresses his emotions. That little contempt verbally and the snarl at the end of that when he mentioned Clinton shows that he certainly does have emotions, but he does keep them in check. Yeah, poor big tough guy who, who who's not allowed to cry, but other people can. You know, it's just it's he's so unemotional. But uh, his attacks were because of his emotions on the government that he hated them and he didn't like what they were doing and he didn't like what they were saying. So he is an emotional brat who decided to kill people because he was too small to to be mm. noticed and like he could have just run for parliament, you know. But anyway, um, he just he just thinks that um, he had to be. Tough and everything. I bet he cried like a baby after after they they charged him. Hundred percent. Mm. Well, interesting. Look, an interesting side note to this is that McVeigh shared a prison wing wing with Ted Kaczynski, and at one point, the journalist, well, of course, as you would, asks about that. Did you ever talk to Kaczynski? I did. Do you think that you and he share similar concerns about how the government operates these days? We have somewhat different views, but there is some common ground there. I found that in a way that I didn't realize that we were much alike in that all we ever wanted or all we wanted out of life was the freedom to live our own lives. Uh, however we chose to. Uh, and he expressed that one day and it hit me that, well, you know, the, this labeling, he's a, he's far left, I'm far right. That's all out the window. Uh, there's a lot more commonality there. You both think you had lost the freedom to live your life the way you wanted to, and you think that the government took those freedoms from you? From my perspective, I believe that it's a problem with government. From Ted's perspective, he believes it's a problem with technology. 
Well, look, it's interesting. We know that Kaczynski is very intelligent. I can't say the same about McVeigh. It is interesting <laughs> that they had common goals and ideals. Um, do you think Kaczynski would have dismissed McVeigh as a poorly organised individual with little insight? <laughs> I think you've I think you've hit it in one there. I don't think that those conversations were going to be a battle of wits. I can't see Kaczynski spending much time talking to the sport army brat who just wanted to have a tantrum and take people with him. Although I guess if you're in prison board, you'll talk to anyone. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, McVeigh has then asked for his one-word opinions of various government departments that were involved in the incidences that he used as his motive. Let me ask you your opinion, just a snapshot opinion of some of the institutions in this country and, and, and some officials in this country. Uh, ATF, for example, Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms Bureau. Should not have law enforcement uh, jurisdiction. Should be taxation agency. The IRS? I believe they're an out-of-control agency. FBI? Should be reined in. What do you think of the Attorney General, Jan Reno? They say if you don't have anything good to say about somebody, you don't say it. So we'll go on to the next person. President Clinton. Uh, I don't hold him in high regard. Didn't really have much to say, did he? <laughs> no, and it's interesting because I thought when they said Janet Reno, who who took the blame for Waco once it went to investigation and everything. I was surprised that he didn't have a lot more to say about her, but obviously he didn't want to sort of go on, on on the attack when it may come to her to actually pardon his death sentence. So, you know, there's all of that that, that weighs into what he's going to say. Um, but, you know, you would think that these are the government agencies that were to bl what that he blamed for what he did but you know he didn't really say think you know they they should be reined in that they should be you know a tax agent like you know i know that they asked for one word and he gave us half sentence but you would think that um he would have more to say about these agencies he spent nine months fueled on anger for them to create this explosion and terrorist attack so you'd think that he would have gone a bit further with that without you know saying you know that they all suck and should be killed you know but there's somewhere in there that he could have said something more than what he has about these agencies which he essentially blames for everything that happened at waco and ruby ridge mm. Absolutely. Well, as we know, McVeigh was sentenced to death and he was asked about how he felt about that. Are you prepared for death? I am. Uh, it's, I came to terms with my mortality in the Gulf War. Uh, after that, it's not that hard to be, quote, prepared for death. But there's a little different experience being in a war and having yourself exposed to danger as opposed to being in prison on death row, knowing that at some date down the line, there will be a lethal injection that will take your life. In truth, from my psychological perspective, it's a little easier being on death row because you know how you're going to die. You can narrow down where you're going to die and you can pretty much narrow down the time. I know you've had you have a lot of time to sit here and think. Yes. If you had your life to live over, is there anything you do differently? 
I've thought about that quite a few times, and I think anybody in life says, I wish I could have gone back and done this differently, done that differently. There are moments, but no one that stands out. Do you reckon, knowing what he knew at that point, if he could go back, would he have made the decision not to bomb the building or would he have made the decision to have a better plan to get away with it? Yeah, I think he should have screwed the number plate on on the back of the car on a bit tighter next time um, because that's how he got caught. I mean, they do silly things like that, and it's just so interesting that they planned this thing. You know, they they knew where they were going to get the truck from. They knew where they, where they were going to put it. They knew where um, the getaway car was going to be. He had the earplugs and everything, but the back number plate was loose. Like, guys, come on, you're so freaking dumb. What happened to the getaway driver? <laughs> Oh, he's in jail for the rest of his life too. So, but he he doesn't speak and doesn't say anything purely because of what was going on with McVeigh. He didn't want the same sentence, but he he got life. Okay, because McVeigh was sentenced to death, and after all of his avenues of appeals were exhausted, he was executed on eleven June two thousand and one. What were his final words, Amanda? Well, he actually read the poem Invictus, um, and the end of it says, uh, Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how chained with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. So it was all about him. Yeah, of course. And he never expressed any remorse? No, that's all That's all he said when um, when he was on the slab. Hmm. All right, well, thank you. It's another fascinating case, Amanda, and I look forward to seeing <laughs> you next week where we've got a very interesting one. We're going back into the world of cults. Oh, yes, one of my favourite topics, so I can't wait. <laughs> we'll see you next week for Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. See ya. See ya.